This time on the Microbinary Podcast, we come from the Arctic Network and Climb Big Data Joint Workshop on COVID-19 Data Analysis, held on the 14th and 15th of January, 2021. So just to introduce the panel members, or I'm actually going to allow them to introduce themselves, I'm going to chair and we're going to hear from Andrew Page from the Quadrum Institute, Anya, who you met already, Will, who you met already, and Anna Price from Cardiff University. I'm just going to ask each of the, the panelists to introduce themselves properly and just maybe share a story about something about COVID genomics that's worked well last year or perhaps has been a total disaster, whichever you fancy. So, Andrew, can you uh, say hello and just introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Andrew Page from the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, which is in the kind of east of England. And I'm head of informatics and do bioinformatics normally. But for COVID, you know, we've been doing lots of sequencing for our little region. So working with like about five different hospitals and we've nearly sequenced about 10,000 samples now at this point. So some good things I think that came out of it are that we are talking directly to the public health teams, the track and trace. So, you know, people who in the local area will go and knock on doors so we can feed them information and say maybe this little cluster here is important or kind of looks a bit odd and they can go and track it down. And also working with the clinicians in the hospitals. So they might come to us with questions like, do we have one outbreak here or is it like 10 different random uh, COVID cases are, uh, coming in from the community and we can, you know, give them a heads up for maybe there, there is linked cases here potentially and they can go and, you know, maybe do a bit more work or not. It doesn't always work out. Often we find that the samples clinicians are most interested in are the ones that they haven't given us so we can't sequence them or that they have very high CT values. It is very low viral load. And of course, we've no genomes for that. Thanks, Andrew. Anya, do you want to reintroduce yourself and share an anecdote? Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I'm Anya O'Toole. I'm in Andrew Rambo's lab up in the University of Edinburgh. I was to finish my PhD last October, but the pandemic has um, sort of taken a precedent over thesis writing. So I'm still a PhD student with Andrew at the moment. Yeah, so it's been a busy year, I think, for everybody. I've learned a lot. Pangolin was the first sort of packaged tool that I wrote and you know sort of over the last year me and Verity and other people in the lab have sort of been coming up with uh, other tools to try and make it as easy as possible for people who are generating the data to actually do outbreak investigations and to sort of get information out of it and I think for me Civit has been a really useful tool sort of on my side and also from <laughs> hopefully the user side as well as you know there's been sort of install issues and stuff like that yesterday on VirtualBox. We'd never really tried that before. But um, yeah, it's been it's been really useful because as I mentioned yesterday, at the very beginning last year, it was a very manual process of doing outbreak investigations. You know, we had people sequencing down the hospital and basically I would get emails from multiple people asking, can I make a tree out of these sequences? And, you know, it was just too much to juggle. So between me and Verity, we wrote this tool, Civit, and it meant that actually the ability to do the outbreak report was in the hospital then. And, you know, obviously there's been sort of development over the last few months, but for me, that's been really useful because it meant people could do it when they wanted to do it and they wouldn't be waiting for me to do it as well. And, and I think it sort of brought that ability out a little bit more, which was really nice. So it's been, I think Civit has been a success, I think is still in development. So 
Yeah, and um, you know these tools have been incredibly useful, certainly in the in the cold project and also globally. I know they're extremely popular now, so it's it's really great that they can be made available in the way that they are. Okay, uh, Will, do you want to say a few words? Hey everyone, I'm Will Rowe, postdoc in Next Group. I was working on the Arctic Network grant before the coronavirus struck, and then now I've been working on this mainly the pipeline, which we all been using yesterday. In terms of anecdotes, I guess something good which has happened is it's been really sort of positive and encouraging experience to sort of be a part of something where lots of biomaticians all come together to work on sort of a shared code base. I mean, I've been used to sort of siloed biomaticians and sort of going from start to finish product and just publishing a paper and that being it. But this is a much more sort of, I mean, it's more exciting. It's more sort of a natural way of evolving something where you've got lots of big, massive user base. And lots of people say we want features and we want this or reports a lot differently. So that's been really sort of encouraging to just be exposed to sort of how I would like bioinformatics to work more in the future. So that's been really good. But at the same time, I guess you could see this as a negative in that you've just working in such a fast paced area, lots of bugs are getting incorporated, which you've got to go and squash at a later date and stuff. So it's sort of a poison chalice really, but it's been, it's been a, a really good experience and it's nice to have something which is being widely used and I'd be really grateful for everyone's feedback and future suggestions on, on sort of this pipeline and other software, that'd be great. Yeah, and this is like the only software with no bugs is software of no users, right? That's the idea. And I think you're right. The team spirit, particularly on on the COG project, has been been immense in terms of fast-paced development. Something we really want to open up more to the rest of the world, which is you know this workshop is is aiming to facilitate that. So thank you, Will. Anna, do you want to uh, uh, give us a few words too? Hi, uh, I'm Anna Price. I'm a research software engineer at Cardiff University working with CLIMB and Supercomputing Wales. So I've been involved with two analysis at, at Cardiff in conjunction with Public Health Wales. Um, so analysis of the new variant in Wales. And also we've been working on an analysis where we tried to determine the uh, rate of importation of cases from England into Wales. So my work mostly um, involved analysis of the COLC UK metadata and the information that can be gleaned from this. So using the metadata to uh, generate information on the geographic distribution of lineages and also using it to look at population characterization. So in terms of things that have gone well, I think I have to highlight the efforts of Public Health Wales and uh, the incredible amount of work they've done. I think just in the last week, PHW sequenced over 2,000 samples. That's an incredible effort. Uh, in terms of things that have gone badly, I think I have to agree with Will in terms of having to work very quickly on software and sometimes bugs get introduced and things go wrong. So, uh, yeah, so that's been a little bit uh, pressurised, but I think, yes, yeah, been a lot of thin work generated and a yeah, huge amount of uh, data generated as well. It's been an interesting time. Thanks, Anna. So, okay, that's great scene setting. So I think we're going to try and turn this panel discussion into, you know, kind of set it up by theme. And the first theme is really to try and get a discussion going around, you know, what do you need? So, you know, we're really interested to know, you know, what the gaps are, what the challenges and the difficulties are. And, and on that theme, I'll take the first question from uh, Christine. Hi, good morning. No, I just asked, what, would it be possible to get examples of spreadsheets and sample ID schemes that are being used to collect metadata from healthcare institutions and public health bodies 
rather than us reinventing the wheel where we are, we could adapt what's being used already. For, for example, it, we, we've, you know, we've started doing our own sequencing. We have a terrible sample ID scheme and I'm trying to force people to change it. And I would love some um, advice. And we got some advice, but it would be nice just to see something that we could adapt. Thanks. Great question. Who, who would like to take that question first? Uh, I can take it maybe. So with metadata, you can go uh, a bit crazy on it. And one extreme might be Phage have a metadata scheme, which is like the, the ultimate for if you really like metadata. But then on the other extreme, you have uh, very minimal. And what we found is that if you ask for too much, people don't give you anything or they give you like virtually nothing. So you have to be very careful and what you ask for and what is really, really important. We can provide uh, like a sample metadata spreadsheet if you want. And we've had to put in like columns, you know, annotated for maybe office staff. You might have to fill these in because computing systems can be maybe not joined up. I know in our local hospital, we have people who have to go into multiple different systems to pull stuff out because, you know, the, there's like 150 different systems in the hospitals that we support. And then say last week, someone changed how data was processed and we ended up having a team of four people just tracking down 200 uh, individuals' metadata, you know, and they spent a couple of days on that. So it can be quite a challenge. So if you do come up with a metadata scheme, make sure that you ask for the absolute minimal that you need to do your job. So that might be maybe an age, gender, that kind of thing. Collection data is very important. And just a few other small things, maybe you're investigating, you know, are people seriously ill or the healthcare workers um, location as well. But if you then dig way too deep and you start, you know, having like 200 different pieces of information people have to fill in, you're going to find they'll, they'll take shortcuts or they'll just put in random boilerplate stuff. Yeah. So just to recap there, there are, so Andrew mentioned the phage project, which is a consortium um, run, I think, out of Sanbi in uh, South Africa. And you've published, I think, a, a basic metadata specification. So that's a good, a good option. In terms of the COG project, Christine, we've, we've published a paper, or it's a preprint on our local database, which is called Majora. That's the one that collects all of the metadata up. And in there, there's a metadata specification that you could look at as well. So those are those are uh, our, our two options to start with. Let's take this question now from Lawrence, who is asking if the panel have any recommendations about how to assess for intrapatient variability, so intrahost variation in SARS-CoV-2. And I think as a, so that's one question and a follow-up question is, can it be done with the Arctic protocol and can it be done on Oxford Nanopore specifically? So who would like to talk about intra-host variation in general first and then answer the questions about Arctic and Minions? I, I, I don't mind having a, a start at, at that. So personally, I think the, the, the jury is currently out as to whether there is significant interesting information in a typical 
SARS-CoV-2 infection, i.e. a quite short infection in terms of intrapatient variability. So you've got to remember where, where that variation comes from. It can come from the fact that someone could be infected by uh, a diverse um, set of, of genomes, if you like. For example, in a situation where the transmission bottleneck is wide and there's lots of circulating diversity, you could be infected by multiple lineages or multiple strains at the same time. In our experience, we don't think that's very common. We don't think there is a wide transmission bottleneck in SARS-CoV-2. And actually, when we look into it, it's very unusual that we find multiple lineages in the same person or even much variability in the same person in, in the context of a, a, a typical infection where you get infected, you, you hopefully don't get too sick, but you might get sick, but you recover within a week or two. That's not very much time for the virus to evolve much in the, in, the, in the person. And that's what we tend to see in the sequencing. And although we do sometimes see what might be called co-infections, it's often quite hard to know if that's real or if that's a technical artifact from, let's say, two different samples getting mixed up in the, in the laboratory process. Because we're often dealing with amplification, very, very small amounts of starting material, even the tiniest amount of contamination between samples before the amplification could result in that in that type of result. But we don't see it very often either way, whether it's technical, whether it's biological. The flip side, though, I would say is that there are now studies that are very interesting looking at patients that don't seem to be able to clear the coronavirus quickly. So I'm thinking about situations such as immune deficient or immune compromised hosts, either through genetic reasons because of an acquired illness like HIV or because of you know, cancer chemotherapy or other immunosuppressant drugs. There have been several case studies where in patients where, where SARS-CoV-2 is not cleared rapidly, where infections can go on for a long time, months. I, th the, I think the, the longest I've seen recorded is about 150 days. In those situations, that's enough time for some appreciable amount of diversity to accumulate in a person. And this might be accelerated by the host condition. If, if the immune response is not very good, it may give the virus a bit more of a playground to test out different combinations of mutations. And interestingly, the new variant that was detected in the UK, which is being called B117, or it's got several other names now, and I can't remember them all, um, <laughs> This, that it's been speculated that virus, which has actually got a very large number of mutations, many more than you would expect over at, at this point in the epidemic with, with an evolutionary rates of about two mutations a month. It's got about 10 or 20 more mutations than you'd expect on that clock. And that was uh, speculated to have emerged during a uh, kind of chronic infection. In those kind of cases, intrahost variation is quite interesting. And so the second part of your question, and I don't know who wants to take this on, is can it be done with the Arctic protocol, either on Illumina or Minions? We did actually publish a paper on looking at this specific question. Can you use Arctic amplicon sequencing to look at intra-host variation? You actually can, but if you do a single sequence, the uh, frequency, you know, single replicate, if you like, if that's a, if that's a thing, the, the frequencies are not 
that well correlated with metagenomics, just because of the sort of stochasticity associated with PCR. And this is particularly problematic at very low viral loads, very high CTs, because you're probably amplifying off one or two or a handful of template molecules, in which case you get a very poor frequency profile that probably um, that, that doesn't make sense because it, you can't find something at 5% or 10% allele frequency if you're amplifying off one copy of a molecule. It's simply mathematically impossible. We found that those results can be improved dramatically if you throw it, if you do replicate sequencing. So if you do, if you do the same, if you do the PCR three times from the same RNA, you get frequencies that much better match what you'd expect from an un unamplified type of approach like uh, metagenomics. And uh, regards to nanopore sequencing, well, nanopore sequencing has clearly a much higher error rate than Illumina sequencing. We would say about 5%, but actually that 5% is quite unevenly distributed between different parts of the genome. In some parts of the genome, it's actually much lower error rate, and in some it's much higher error rate, for example, near homopolymers. So in that case, nanopore sequencing, the frequencies generally correlate well with Illumina and with metagenomics um, in, in regions where you have detected that there is variation. So if you know a priori you're interested in a particular location, it tends to correlate quite well. It's not very good for discovering low frequency variation down at the one, two, three percent mark, but at the kind of 25, 50 percent mark, it's quite good. Right, that was quite a long um, answer. Did anyone, any other panelists want to <laughs> want to chip in there and, and disagree, particularly if you want to disagree with me? Well, I'd just like to say that a lot of the variation, if you do just randomly look at a sample, it's probably going to be contamination or something like that. So you're probably 99% of what you're going to chase is probably going to be just simple little, um, you know, bits of noise. So maybe try and skip that one and, you know, leave it for the moment. Yeah, I, I agree. I think for a, for a single, you know, a single time point, single sample, single sequence, you know, the probability of finding things that are interesting is probably outweighed by the probability of finding things that are technical artifacts. I think that was probably, I think that agrees with what you were saying, Andrew. I think in the situation where you do have a long-term infected patient, multiple time points where you can track the trajectory of you know, these intra-host variations. If you can see particular mutations going up in frequency or descending in frequency, that's much more stronger evidence that uh, there's a, a real effect going on in that patient. Although several papers have been published talking about the use of intra-host variation for, for example, doing genomic epidemiology, I, I'm not actually convinced that it's adding a great amount of signal in terms of let's say, resolving transmission chains. I, I don't think there's a very good evidence base for that at the moment, regardless of the protocol that you use. So I wouldn't get too bogged down with doing that. I'd much rather have lots of samples than have uh, than look very deeply into an individual sample, if that makes sense. John, do you want to ask your or, or share your experience and ask your question directly? We were mandated to test COVID within my institution here. It's the International Livestock Research Institute. But before we gained that ability, there was only one institution, that is the Kenya Medical Research Institute, through a collaboration with Wellcome Trust that were 
mandated to do the testing. But since they are focusing on human research, they were given also the go-ahead to sequence the samples. And mostly they have submitted data on GSAID and they've done that, the sequencing using mean ion. But here in my institute, we do have both Illumina and uh, mean ion. But the, a major challenge has been to convince the government to give us approval in order for us to sequence the samples, even though we do the testing. So it's taken quite a uh, amount of time, but I think hopefully soon we will begin that. So my question is, how can we uh, better engage the government or uh, the ministries of health in helping us tackle these problems, especially when they become a pandemic like SARS-CoV-2? That's a really uh, great question, I think. You know, how do you... <laughs> persuade the government that sequencing is important and to support it. I mean, the UK has been in an interesting position because I think we started our coronavirus sequencing long before the government was interested in coronavirus sequencing. But the discovery of new variants recently has really changed the interest levels of government. They are much, much more interested in uh, using this information, particularly as it relates to issues around travel corridors um, and uh, travel policies. And of course, we have a situation at the moment where UK nationals are banned from traveling to many countries because of the potential for us exporting new variants. But we are also now imposing travel bans from countries in South America because of the Brazil variant and also from South Africa because of the variant that was discovered there. So this turns it very political very quickly. Would anyone like to comment specifically on John's question? I mean, it's probably worth saying in the UK, we've been building the groundwork for a long time. Nick will remember when he first started working with me, we, we used to just joke about the fact that Public Health England would never, ever do genome sequencing. It was just inconceivable. This was just a, a, a research tool and we in our ivory tower universities would gloat over it, but we'd never get the public health authorities using it. But that transformation did come. It came unevenly. Some parts of Public Health England took to genome sequencing very easily, other parts not so much. But we'd already laid that groundwork in that we'd engaged with, the, with those people. They, you know, it was clear that it was a good thing to do. Obviously, there are issues about sometimes that people don't want to know the answer as well. So if you if you can prove that there's an outbreak going on in a hospital and the patients are catching it in the hospital, whether it's MRSA or, or COVID, uh, the hospital authorities will say, well, we don't want to know that. <laughs> that, that affects our, our reputation. And, and these issues are things where you have to say, well, you've got to step back from that petty business about your reputation and have a system in place where actually these kind of things are mandated and that people have to share information. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it, uh, it's a slow process winning over opinion across and building that bridge. I mean, one of the things that is always at risk is the clinical academic interface, keeping people who are working in clinical practice and academics talking to each other and actually having people who are qualified in both areas to be able to take what we find in the university environment as new methodologies and new approaches and findings and translate them into, into the clinical environment. Always a struggle to keep that, that interface going. Uh, 
Sorry, no, I was just saying that in Trinidad, one of the things that helped us to get our Ministry of Health and Public Health Agency on board very quickly was the assurance that we weren't going to be sending any samples overseas. So having that local capacity for the sequencing, we use the um, Minayan, having that um, local capacity really helped us. They were not interested in, you know, having samples go anywhere else. And that, that made a big difference. So I don't know if that's helpful to John. That's really interesting. I mean, one bit of practical advice from the UK, because I think other countries have got caught out here where they've engaged in genome sequencing programs in public health, is to establish very, very early, ideally written down and passed by the government, the principle of data sharing. So if you state in your protocol, your sampling protocol and your sequencing protocol that data produced will be submitted to public databases at the point of production and get that, you know, at the point that you start your protocol, that will probably not be so controversial. Establish that principle and, and, and I think the UK did this, get a lot of credit for sharing data. That makes it much harder for then governments to say, as Mark alluded to, that actually we don't want this information getting out because of potential political costs associated uh, with it. Once you've started sharing data, it's kind of hard to stop. But many countries maybe did it the other way around, started sequencing and then sought permission to share data. And that is much harder, I think, to, to do. So that's just a practical point if you're getting um, started up. I will add a, a simple comment that if you look, there's a nice WHO report that came out quite recently. I did link it in my slides. And that's very nice reading because it's written and makes a good case for sequencing. And it's written in a way that policymakers can understand. So if you're looking for the words to make the case, that might be a good place to have a look and, and base it, some of your argument out of that. Thanks, Nabil. Anyone else I, want to contribute? I suppose you also need the political will as well from the very top. And that did help the UK quite, quite a lot. Because I know, like, say, in Ireland, they got a huge pot of money early on, but then it took them six months before they were allowed to get permission to actually go and, you know, start doing the work because they had to work out all the legalities. Whereas in the UK, they, they put in legislation, which made it a little bit easier to kick things off. Yeah, it's better for you to establish your genome sequencing and be able to analyse it and be able to make recommendations to public health rather than other people doing it. So one thing that you can suggest to government is that if you don't do your own genome sequencing, because of the still amount of travel that's going on, people will make inferences about uh, what's happening in your country through analyzing data from returning travelers, let's say, or just making inferences on the basis of no data. So it's much better to have a data set of your own that you can see in real time that you can analyze to make public health decisions. And I think the other thing that really is focusing the mind is the, as I mentioned before, the, the, the focus on the novel variants um, and the potential link between these novel variants and increased transmissibility and potentially evading antibodies. So, you know, potentially evading natural immune responses means it's, it's extra important to know what variants, what's, what, what lineages are circulating in your country in order to, to try and, if you like, quarantine um, the more worrying ones because the, these variants at this point have not spread globally, but left unchecked, we expect that they will. 
Okay, I'm going to move on to some other questions. Ben, do you want to ask? Do you want to ask your question? Yeah, I work as a clinical microbiologist in Scotland, and we've established um, sequencing locally for outbreaks. But I'm just keen to keep my skills up with bioinformatics, and I've done a couple of really good courses, like the Wellcome Trust um, ones and some Future Learn ones. But just really wondered if there were any more courses like this one uh, that you're you're giving at the moment. If you could recommend them, that would be great. It's a very common question at the end of a bioinformatics course is, are you running any more bioinformatics courses? And I always wonder if that just means we've done it wrong <laughs> or it just means that- No, we've you've done it right. right. You've done it right, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. Who wants to, who wants to answer uh, that question from our, from our panel? Great, Will. It's all right. Obviously, it's, 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 it's sort of a massive area, isn't it, bioinformatics? And so um be useful to know a little bit more about what you're after but in terms of someone who's new to bioinformatics and wanted to be able to get a bit more independence in it i can fairly recommend learning a a, a, a pipelining language like nextflow or snakemake i can they, they have really good uh, online tutorials available which you can do in your own time it's really easy to install them and you can get some simple examples up and running really quickly i'll paste a couple of links into the chat box as where you can find those but if you're wanting more sort of like bioinformatics training, I guess, I mean, you want to start digging into writing some of your own stuff, maybe some, some basic Python scripting. Rosalind offers some really good training. So they sort of set really short problems, which you can have a go answering yourselves with any coding language. And it, that's what I use to, to learn bioinformatics. And so I can recommend doing that as well, if that's more what you're after. And, all, and, and as, well, as well as that, I think uh, get engaged with the online community like if, if you want to start learning how things work and, and want to and want a bit more guidance most of these tool developers uh, go out of their way to, to help you so just go on to github tool you're interested in or want to learn to use more raise an issue on github or they have online chat forums and things so definitely worth just just getting a bit more stuck in in, in that sense and, and and that can really help you sort of move along in, in the bioinformatics capacity as well but if there's anything in particular you want, you want guidance or training on, if you could stay and maybe we can be a bit more specific. I was also going to mention, so not an open source thing now, unfortunately, but if you're in Scotland, I've done quite a few of the Edinburgh Genomics courses, which you do have to pay for. But I remember when I was first learning to code and they the sort of, I, I sort of taught myself and done some online courses before in Python and actually having a taught week-long course in sort of, you know, formal Python learning was really helpful and my coding improved quite a lot from that. They also do sort of Linux courses. They do various specific courses in addition to just the Python or coding ones as well. So I would recommend them, but unfortunately you do have to pay for them. So, so I'm going to be kind of virtual here maybe and say that you need to hire people who actually have the pre-existing skills because it can take years to get to a level where you are sufficiently skilled to analyze this kind of data. And a one-week course might be a nice introduction, or for you as a manager, you might be able to guide and, and direct other work. But in terms of actually doing it, you need to hire someone who's actually a professional in that area. Like I've been doing this like more than 20 years, and I've been doing sorry, computer science for more than 20 years. And still, I don't necessarily think I'm an expert in this. And you know, when it comes to bioinformatics, particularly around individual pathogens, you know, these things are so specific and there's so many little gotchas and so many little quirks. It takes years and years and years to learn. I would say just hire someone who actually knows what they're doing and who can figure out, you know, where the best resources are and how to fix different problems. Otherwise, you know, you might spend six months 
you know, faffing around when you could just hire someone who can, you know, do the same thing in two days because they they are pre-skilled. That's a that's a provocative pers- perspective. I like it. And Joe, it's probably worth saying that SARS-CoV-2 is so new that a year ago there were there were no experts, and arguably there are still there are still no experts. But I, I know exactly what where you're coming from. I'm waiting for the HR to put out the job descriptions that are like, you know, COVID bioinformatician required, requires three years of experience. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anna, did you have any perspectives as a research software engineer? Yeah, I mean, just to expand a bit on what Will said about Nextflow and Snakemake, I think it's definitely important to pick one and sort of learn if you're sort of interested in writing your own bioinformatics pipelines and in terms of running other people's as well, because increasingly people are turning to NextFlow and SnakeMake. There is actually a quite a good community around NextFlow called NFCall. It's probably worth a look because they've got quite a lot of interest in pipelines that you might be interested in uh, having a look at. Thank you. Yeah. And I do agree that, that these workflow languages are, are a really useful skill for any budding bioinformatician to learn and and also i think nabil made this point in his talk there's a lot out there already that's that's pretty good to build off so starting from scratch is great for learning bioinformatics but for getting work done in a in a high pressure environment probably best to start with things that are well tested and and ideally validated we do have the sops that are have been there since since the start since january on the arctic website and we can post up the links to those the sops do cover setting up a lab sequencing and bio initial bioinformatics we also have some phylogenetic tutorials made by annual and verity that are focused around ebola from training courses in the past that can also be adapted or, or looked at so those are useful resources it's but i mean there's clearly that we could clearly put more documentation in did you want to talk about any of those at all, Anya, in terms of resources that are available? Yeah, so I was going to just mention about when we, a couple of years ago, Nick, I and a few of the others from the Arctic Network went to Ghana and we had a whole week long training session where we went from sort of sample through sequencing and then actually did hands on, obviously, in person at the time, bioinformatics teaching and then sort of bringing people through the pipeline. And the thing that I sort of Remember, I think it was really good. I think people learned a lot from it. But I think part of the the sort of a lot of the time got sucked up actually on very basic bioinformatics. So it's one thing to run the pipeline, but actually even just knowing where you are when you're on the terminal, you know, knowing what directory you're in, knowing where your files are. These are really basic things that actually there's so many resources online that you can kind of familiarize yourself with. So I think doing a course and like being walked through these commands is, is great but it's one thing to to do that and maybe just be copying and pasting in from the from the from the notes which works and is fine but I think actually even just independently you can get some practice just by playing around and with with the terminal and 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 getting familiar with it yourselves definitely so a question from Rach Toom the question is how how is the arctic pipeline pangolin civet how have they uh, been validated for use? Is there a standard process you tend to use? Yeah, so I think um, Pangolin and Civet have maybe uh, 
two different approaches and when we, when we talk about that. So Pangolin, the actual data that goes into training the model in Pangolin is manually curated. So in terms of the input, we are visually inspecting it and making sure that, that this, it's a sequence name mapped to a lineage assignment. And that's done by curating through the, the tree or if people have generated sequences and sort of flag that they have their own a new lineage or something like that, we can include it. And if anybody is doing sequencing and um, notices that they have a sort of cluster of sequences that they think should be a lineage, definitely flag it either on the GitHub, send me a message on Twitter, an email, anything, and we can actually try and incorporate it into the scheme so you can get that lineage assigned. In terms of validating the output, so we train the model and then we test and run all of the sequences and do 10 cross-validation of the model and we get results about their recall accuracy precision for all different lineages and different lineages do have some some have better some have worse recall you know so depending on how big the lineage is if it's got SNPs that might be present in multiple lineages it, it, it does vary but on average we're at about um 98.6 percent accuracy for the lineage assignments so so it, it does vary and ambiguities and sort of missing data can can kind of affect that themselves, but we're always updating and sort of keeping an eye on these things. In terms of civet, the input is that big tree. So the sort of validation goes along and sequence quality and stuff like that is all part of Grapevine, which is being run by um, Ben Jackson on Climb every day. So the input itself, and actually civet in, its, in itself is really just summarizing the data. So you have your input sequence, we match it to the the closest thing in the tree and then we summarize the information so in terms of actual analysis going on there's really not that much it's it's more of a and a lot of the the things um, that we're using they're they're really well validated tools already so they're things like minimap 2 by Heng Li which is this incredible tool you know it aligns the whole 300,000 sequences in a matter of seconds so it's an amazing tool so we are sort of combining really good pieces of software from various people and then summarizing it in a nice report. So that's sort of two different, two different kind of processes for that. Thank you. Certainly different groups will tend to validate their whole process. So that's quite important. They'll, they'll want to validate the entire process, including the lab work and the bioinformatics and the answer. Generally with SARS-CoV-2, there isn't a huge amount of ground truth available for validation. So, you know, you can do things like sequence positive control material that's well characterized and check that you're producing the right variants. So for example, in Birmingham, I think we've done something like 130 or 40 sequencing runs of SARS-CoV-2. On every single run, we include a positive control from a isolated SARS-CoV-2 virus cell culture and a negative control. And so we would check on every single run that we're pulling out the correct set of variants and positive control and that the negative uh, control is clean. But generally what we have to do for validation of pipelines is kind of cross-validation. So sequencing the same samples with different, slightly different methods and comparing them. So for example, sequencing on nanopore and alumina and cross-checking that they give the same results is work that we've done in the past and also checking different protocols, metagenomics versus amplicons, to check that that gives the same results. And, and uh, we also have a kind of a, a, a more broad validation in the sense of that everyone in the COG consortium is throwing in data of different 
from different places with different protocols that are brought together. And so that often throws up a very easy way of finding anything anomalous. So for example, if you identify a new variant, you, you know, you, we've found examples where, for example, some pipelines like the Arctic pipeline will call correctly deletions so that that new variant is is characterized by several short deletions in the genome but but other pipelines perhaps don't call that deletion correctly call it as as n characters or don't call it at all that's a good way of doing kind of cross-validation will's also done a lot of work on the on the nanopore arctic pipeline to make sure that it conforms to kind of modern software development practices and testing don't know if you wanted to mention that at all so whenever we make changes to the to the Arctic pipeline, we check it against positive control samples, basically, to make sure that we haven't broken anything. But these are against sort of a, a standard set of variants we expect to find when we run in the raw data and want to produce a consensus genome. But on, on that note, particularly for those wanting to sort of implement bioinformatics practices and, and standardise them, I'd thoroughly recommend using releases, tagged releases of all software, doing it within control controlled environments like condor environments are great for this be cautious using anything which hasn't had a release because people can sort of pollute the code in the, in the main branch on github so if you just go and pull down a, a github branch it may or may not work properly it's always worth checking the build tests quite often they have a little badge there saying that they're passing or failing so that's a good way to standardize things for, for the arctic pipeline and the stuff doing at cog we we use the um, stamped releases so we can version control the software all the way through so that if something does to start look a bit funny maybe when we um, release a new version of the software we can always roll back to a previous one uh, until we've fixed any problems that might have um, arisen so yeah i can thoroughly recommend that as a, as a standard practice to, to do if you're doing bioinformatics maybe just to set expectations though it is a very rapidly changing area and there is changes in all the software on a weekly basis and if you think that you can just freeze everything today and use that for the next two years you're, you know, you're going to encounter a lot of problems because there is people con- constantly improving things, finding new things, putting it in place. And, uh, you know, it's very rapid academic quality software being updated as fast as possible in response to the pandemic. I think that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. And also, I think it ties into your early point as well, that you do need the um, sort of professionals to be able to sort of tell when you, when, you, when you need to change your software, if you like, and to sort of validate the changes which are taking place, whether or not uh, there's something you want to incorporate in your pipelines, or if you should be sticking to a release which is doing something in particular. So, yeah, very fair point. I might comment yeah. on that as well about the sort of software and then also the lineages releases. So, you know, if, if you have been doing sequencing, you'll have noticed that lineages get updated pretty regularly over the last three weeks, very, very regularly, as we've sort of had a few various sets of variants flagged and um, we're sort of optimizing how we're assigning them. And that's one thing that we do as well that Will mentioned was that we tag not only versions of Pangolin, so Pangolin itself and the assignment method that it uses is one but we also have tagged dated versions of the lineage releases. So if say you've done an analysis from back in March or April last year, really early on, the lineages that you may have assigned then will be very different from the ones that get assigned now. The thing is, if you want, all of the versions are still available online. So if you have done that analysis and want to replicate it, you can go back and and use that version of the software and that version of the data, which all still exist. 
But if you want the most up-to-date information, definitely recommend using the most recent, both version of Linny of the Pangolin model and also um, version of Pangolin as well. So. Well, I just caution, I've reviewed a lot of bioinformatics papers for SARS-CoV-2 genomics. And one of the most common problems is where people use commercial systems, black boxes, and they think that, you know, the company is telling them, you know, this is all, you know, really great. You can just press the magic button. But these are the papers most often where you have very, very clear and obvious errors. And so don't be fooled by you know, just dropping in a standard commercial system and thinking everything is fine, often it may not be. Yeah, I think that's um, a really good point. And academic software gets a lot of um, a stick, you know, that people, you know, the academic quality is not always thought to be that high, but the commercial software can, can sometimes be worse because it has the illusion of quality people will you know it, it, it's nicely packaged it works very easily it produces an output very easily and and these are the features that people look for in commercial packages you know easy to install nice GUI but you know they'll also just allow you know they will not they'll not know that you're using the Arctic Amplicon scheme they won't know anything about SARS-CoV-2 they'll just allow you to put in a fast Q file and spit out an answer making a bunch of assumptions and those assumptions are probably invalid um, until the developers of that software understand how the field has progressed and understand how to deal with that data and, and make an update. So uh, in a way, the, uh, the commercial packages can sometimes be, as you say, that the, the actually produce the worst results. In a few years' time, they'll probably be the best, you know, but, but right now they're in a kind of, we're in a kind of transition uh, period. Okay, that seems to have answered uh, Rachel's question, which is great. So I think we're coming to the end. We've had an hour of uh, Q&A and I think it's been really interesting. We've covered a couple of interesting topics. Then let's say goodbye. Bye from all the panellists. Thank you for attending and we'll see you on the Slack or somewhere else soon, I'm sure. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.